Welcome to Watershed's June podcast. I'm Tara Judarem, the cinema producer here at Watershed, and I'm joined by Mark Cosgrove, cinema curator. And this month in June, we have loads of films we're really excited about. So we're going to discuss a few of those before we come on to um, celebration of Frankenstein and the Sunday brunches throughout the month of June. Let's start with one that we both saw, Mark, that we both really enjoyed. And I think this was a real pleasant surprise. Uh, My Friend Dharma. A very much a surprise because the prospect of this film, which is a portrait of the early life of the notorious American serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, and it's a, a drama um, about that. I, I just thought to myself in advance, I thought, what is this thing about you know getting inside the mind of serial killers? You know, we know that Tarantino apparently is working on a film about that might be about Charles Manson, which just horrif- the prospect of that just horrifies me. Yeah. Of course, Lars von Trier, um, just a few weeks back in Cannes, has given us the house that Jack built, which is a fictionalised, but is about, you know, a serial killer. There's David Finch's um, TV series Mindhunter, which is all about getting into this kind of psychology of serial killers. I think there is definitely something in the air at the moment about what is the psychology of building a serial killer. And so this worries me because, mm. and especially, um, in the hands of Tarantino, it really worries me because it's sure. what, what we're doing here, are we celebrating um, you know, the, the, the crazy world of the serial killer and, and his sort of hyper style. So so my friend Dama was shown at the Tribeca Film Festival this year. Um, I saw that it was coming up and I, I and the release schedule in the UK and I was thinking, why do we why why do we want to show a film like this and what what's this going to be about? Spill forward, see it a few weeks back, uh, we watched it together. And it was the one film that I just took away that stayed with me. Mm. Um, I think it's an. I think I actually think it's an extraordinary film, both cinematically in the way in which it, it, it is put together, and it's actually based on the friend, school friend of Jeffrey Dahmer, John Backderf, who was in school with with you know school friend Jeffrey Dahmer. He went on to be a, a, a cartoonist and graphic novelist, and it's based on his graphic novel, My Friend Dahmer. And so the source material is absolutely so close to Jeffrey mm. Dahmer and that what I found out in, in sort of doing some res- further research about it is the graphic novel um, that he put together is actually, s- some of it is seen by scene in the film. It's been recreated. So there is a, a, a sense of authenticity mm. to the, absolutely authenticity to the story. But what, um, what, what John, what John Backdorf uh, talks about is that of course he, heard in the news Jeffrey Dahmer had been arrested for this the serial killing that was going on and he suddenly went that guy that I was at school with and so it makes it into you know it's, it's that thing about this person is you know they aren't abstract they aren't the thing dark in the night they're actually a school friend and and so it explores the relationship um, at school because so, of course the film covers the period through school up until the first victim. You don't see anything, but the, the the name of the person is enough to know that what is going to happen next. And and so it becomes a film about what do you do? What is the responsibility? What do you do when it's quite clear that somebody that is a friend, and of course the notion of friend is a bit sort of problematic and it is problematising the film because there's a bit of bullying, there's all this, but what do, what do you, what is the sort of responsibilities of people who somebody to somebody who's clearly mentally distressed, 
who's coming into school as an alcohol, you know, reeking of alcohol. So not just the friends. I mean, the friends are, but but the school teachers, the um, and so it raises all these really really interesting questions about what is is our collective responsibility. So I actually found it quite a kind of profound, thoughtful film. Yeah, I did too. In fact, I had a really interesting conversation with um, Anna Bogatskaya, who's one part of the Final Girls UK, about this film and about how what one of the things that it does is prefigures all of the crimes. Um, so if you know about Jeffrey Dahmer, all that information is sort of there in the film, while not in any way engaging in being explicit, exploitative, or, um, you know, kind of reveling in the sort of the Tarantino-esque thing that we were just talking about, mm. the, the, what you might be concerned about in terms of a depiction of a serial killer. And this is very much that story of, actually, it's a really lo-fi American indie film in terms of that I would say more the genre it belongs to. It has um, a slow pace that is really effective and that really builds. And I was astonished by how well the tension in this film builds when it's not in any way gory. There's nothing, um, no crime in in that way happens in the film. I mean, the things he goes on to do are, are atrocious. Um, and none of those things happen in this film, but just, it's just looming, this incredible you, you, impending sense of dread. And I found the... Um, the, the performance the, of... The climax of this film, terrifying, even yeah. though nothing happened, you know. I, but I just found this film to be absolutely gripping. Mm. I think it's an incredibly suspenseful work. And it does that really well through the camera work. It does mm. it really well through building tension and tone throughout the film. Well, I was going to say, it, 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 it's very much in the performance of Ross Lynch, mm. um, who... You know, is known and Alex Wolfe actually, I think the supporting uh, one of the supporting characters mm -hmm. is is also brilliant. But that um, performance from from Ross is, is you get that sense of the impending doom. The the but it, but that it can be changed if only there was a kind of connection that was made. If only there was something that you know you get. Um, and I think he's he's he manages to get that um, emptiness and the stare. In the, in the bulky performance yes. that can, can feel sort of a bit arch. But the more the film goes on, the more you, uh, and the, actually the more you think about the film afterwards, it's quite an extraordinary performance, which okay. hints at that disassociation from everything. But somebody who, who kind of is in need of somebody to take him to one side and say, you know, do you need some help? And I think what's so interesting about that is so constantly throughout the film that you were just saying that feeling of if only somebody had intervened, if only somebody had done something, is that that is also, and that's very clever, that's also the story of what happened when he went on to become a serial killer. Mm -hmm. They could have caught him yeah. multiple times before he was yeah. caught. The police, I mean, it's astounding how many yeah. times he wasn't arrested when he should have been and how many times he got away with things where it was quite clear um, that it was sort of shoddy police work or just like the, you know the slipping through the fingers thing is kind of a, extraordinary and so I think that, that the film very cleverly does that because it is pointing to um, both the systemic problem of social structures that don't that don't support um, and don't notice things early enough and that's the family structure the school structure the police structure it's all of those things it's like he they, they every single one of them systematically failed to pick this up um, and to prevent the atrocious crimes I think it's a really fascinating film so I I've certainly gone from um a feeling of, of why do you want to see a film uh, like this to saying to people look you should really go along and see this film because <laughs> it's really it's, so I hope people do when that when that opens this month
And so also this month, we have a film called A Chambra, uh, which is a really fascinating, sort of almost um, Italian neo-realist style film. So it's an Italian film, but it's about a Romani um, family. And it focuses on actually the kind of intersection between the Romani culture and migrant culture, because there's also a, a lead character. We, we follow a young boy, Pio, and his friendship with um, a, a migrant from Burkina Faso, Ayiva. So it's this kind of relationship between two people who are on the fringes of society. Um, and it's in an a, a impoverished community. They're sort of living in a, a kind of style of ghetto, I guess. It, I mean, they live in a house, but it's, you know, they live in very poor conditions, they're stealing electricity. And what's most fascinating about the film is that it sits in this air space of non-professional actors, but in a way that it's like the characters in the film are the people who live there playing versions of themselves. So I suppose in a way you could say the narrative is fictional, but actually most things about this film are just very naturalistic. Also, it's not a heavily plot or narrative driven film. So it is a kind of slice of life looking at the existence of these people and a young boy growing up in this scenario, um, you know, smoking a lot, drinking a lot, kind of exposed to, to petty crime, theft, um, no strong role models, problematic role models, but also kind of the existence of his way of life. Um, it won the Europa Cinema's Label Award. I think that, you know, this film is one that really casts an eye on a section of society that quite often just goes unnoticed and that people aren't really willing to look at. Um, and, and, and I think that the what's successful about the film is that it, it doesn't have a kind of probing, judging eye. So the camera follows the characters very much in that style of Italian neorealism or maybe in the kind of uh, Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne style. So we, we kind of get a sense of following the character rather than passing judgment over him. I, I've not seen um, A Chambra yet, but I saw the director's earlier work um, and thought it was really interesting in terms of um, capturing and, or presenting on screen um, those sort of marginalised communities and voices. So I'm looking forward to, to seeing this. And for people who have seen Mediterranean, the 2015 film that you just mentioned, actually, so um, the character from Burkina Faso in this film, Aiva, is the same actor from mm. the previous film. Yeah. So there's sort of almost like a, yeah. a carrying on of that story. Mm. So slight change in mood for my next choice is The Happy Prince by Rupert Everett, the actor Rupert Everett, who uh, plays Oscar Wilde. Um, in this film. And now Rupert Everett has had a long-term relationship with Oscar Wilde as he's played him in many different, um, both films and, and theatre. I think there's a bit of Rupert Everett that will forever be Oscar, Oscar Wilde. Uh, <laughs> but he, he both directs, so it is a passion project, but that is to sort of slightly um, might think, oh, it's not very good then. You know, if it's a passion project, it can sometimes be, well, maybe they shouldn't have been so passionate. Um, but in a way, it, it, it his 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 knowledge, enthusiasm, obvious love and identification with Oscar Wilde and that um, everything that Oscar Wilde embodied in terms of that sort of um, the, the gayness, the flamboyance, um, the, the creativity, the intellectual wit, Rupert Everett really, really captures it um, as a performance. Um, and also he's directed it and, and he shows a really great um, directorial uh, hand and and eye, but it covers the the the, the period um, of the trial 
and post that um, in Reading Jail, and then um, his exile in France uh, and in Italy. Um, and it, cu- it cuts between um, both of the, it cuts between all of those parts of his, his life. And The Happy Prince refers to a story that Oscar Wilde would tell his kids, and that is reflected in um, him telling a couple of street kids in Paris when he's in exile in Paris, the same story, which provides a really nice sort of counterpoint and also a kind of parable about um, the happy prince that reflecting on Oscar Wilde's own life. But what what struck me whilst retelling, and and I think we all know Oscar Wilde's um, story, but what struck me about it was its sort of resonance with now. And there's there's an extraordinary scene, which by all accounts is actually something that happened, was that when Oscar Wilde was transferred from, I think it was Wandsworth Prison in London, going to Reading Jail, they, they had to change at Clapham Junction. And the police made a big deal of the kind of publicness of this. Right. And so there's this incredible scene where he's vilified. People recognise who it was, because it was obviously you know, a big public figure in the press. And people were just spitting on him and really abusing him and you know, everything, and this began. And, and it sort of made you think about you know, that kind of level of homophobia um, and outrage and the way in which you know, people are victimised. You sort of think, oh, this is just kind of resonating actually with with now, right? Uh, and so there is a kind of an interesting way in which that story is is reflecting, is reflective of, and the way in which Oscar Wilde was was treated is kind of reflecting back on today, which I thought was a really uh, nice touch that Rupert Everett gave it. But it it, it is also just a film that is you 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 is such exuberance in his performance, and so the. Even the dying remark, which again Oscar Wilde um, apparently said, was uh, when he was in a, a, a kind of almost slum house, or uh, in, in Paris with shocking gaudy wallpaper. Uh, he was quoted as saying, "It's either me or the wallpaper that has to go." <laughs> <laughs> and that wit and sharpness of mind, even at the last moment, um, he he really does brilliantly capture, as well as this milieu. Um, so thoroughly recommend. That's fascinating to hear because I was really curious about how the tone would work in that film in terms of obviously the sparkling repartee versus mm. kind of the more serious elements. So it's nice to know that it strikes balance. Yeah, no, it really gets that, that, that balance perfectly, I think. The Boy Downstairs is a film that I'm very excited about. So I've only just seen this um, and it's a first feature film from Sophie Brooks. Um, she made a couple of shorts previous to this, but she's written and directed. Uh, it's a really belonging to the American indie kind of Again, really lo-fi, somewhere between romantic comedy, but not that bawdy, I, th- I think, and maybe mumblecore. Actually, somewhere between those two things. Um, and it stars Zosha Mamet and Matthew Shear. And Zosha Mamet obviously became a star mostly from Girls, the TV show, um, where she played Shoshana. But she's also been in a bunch of other films like Greenberg, The Kids Are All Right, Wiener Dog, um, and recently in Cannes, I haven't seen it, but Under the Silver Lake. So. Um, She's kind of definitely, I think this is a, a, for her, a break away from the kind of persona of Shoshana and Girls. I think that she's trying to do something with a little bit more um, subtlety and depth. And she's actually an extraordinarily talented actress. A really brilliant performance from her in this film. Um, And Matthew Shear, who was in also Mistress America and the Maya Witt story. So we've got that kind of um, American indie background for both of the actors. And I I think they're very well cast in this film. And it's just a story of um, a young woman in New York City who is trying to be a writer. I mean, it's familiar territory. Um, She moves into this magnificent apartment which always seems a little bit ridiculous to me, uh, having done the kind of writerly thing where you 
barely can afford somewhere with functioning heat. But, you know, she manages to find a beautiful brownstone. Um, and the boy downstairs, she doesn't know until she moves in, is her ex-boyfriend um, from some years earlier. And so we kind of get the story told back to us. But what I think this film does is that it actually appeals to what's quite often, I mean, I feel like I'm its key demographic and sometimes cinema forgets to tell my the story of my age group which is like women in their 30s who are kind of at this point and it may resonate also with women in their 20s it's not to say it's specifically for women but I think women in their 30s and 40s who've kind of gone through this period of their life um, where you're trying to strike a balance between your personal ambitions particularly around career focused goals and how you how you manage um, a relationship that is really um, very emotionally engaged and I, and I guess part of this is uh, what why I find this interesting is because generationally it's something that Millennials um, and even Gen X really have to think about in a way that like baby boomers had a very different trajectory they they would have settled down earlier and you see that in the kind of references to um, his character's parents in the film as well like the expectations of wanting that thing of like a love that lasts and a stable kind of family life, but we have a different trajectory now. And for younger women, it's more about what are the complications of maybe you do want those things, but you really also want to make sure you don't miss out on the opportunity in, in this period of time to kind of get that thing right about your career and get that on track. And I, th I just think that that's actually, it's a, really, it's a really simple story, but it's beautifully told here. And I just think there's some elegance in kind of thinking through something so subtle. Like it, there's no big dramatic thing in the character arc. She's not a hot mess. You know, there's no kind of extreme characterizations. These are two really believable people who could have just fallen in love and are just having a difficult time of working out how is that going to fit with the rest of what I want out of my life. It's interesting you mentioned that um, demographic side because that American indie cinema of, say, Greta Gerwig, um, it's just something that's never appealed to me. I recognise it as, mm. you know, she's great presence and performance. Um, like when Frances Ha, the one after that, I can't remember um, the title. Mistress America yes. and the yeah. recently Lady Bird, yeah. Well, Lady well, Bird, slightly different, different because she's because not she's, on screen. Yeah. But um, it, 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 I realise it's not for me. <laughs> yeah. So it's not actually, um, it's that thing, it's not for me. It's an interesting um, thing about the demographic. I had a conversation um, a few weeks back with the producer of On Chessel Beach and we just agreeing that, you know, you think On Chessel Beach, an adaptation of Ian McEwan would be for a certain demographic. Mm. Um, and then some students watched it. They really connected with the character of that Saoirse Ronan plays in that film. And you suddenly went, oh, so you have this idea of demographic, but actually it connects in a wider way. Um, and I guess, you know, with American Indie, um, it's speaking to an American audience as well, but um, actually it's connecting with UK audiences in a different way as well. Yeah, and I, I mean, I really do think it's speaking, it's speaking profoundly to a generation, um, and particularly to women of that generation, that, you know, it, this film may not be for you, but most of the history of cinema is, so this is sort of like an opportunity where we, we get to see a different story told. I mean, it, it is familiar territory in some ways, but I think really, Brilliant, subtle performances. It's it's really well observed piece. Um, a, a fantastic debut from Sophie Brooks. I really look mm. forward to what she comes up with mm. next. Well, this next film, Arcadia, I have to declare an interest in, <laughs> as um, 
this is this is a film by Paul Wright, Scottish director, who made For Those in Peril, uh, which is a really great debut uh, feature film a few years back. And what he's done with Arcadia is he's been given access to um, the, the BFI film archive, and he's put together he's just uses archive footage, um, and he's he's put together this film which explores um, our historical connection with the countryside and um, the kind of folk traditions, uh, but but brings it very much up to date. Um, and my connection with it is is that. One of the musicians, um, Adrian Utley, who scores the film, I got involved in the project, uh, and along with Will Gregory. Um, so they've done the music to this uh, these archive footage, and this, this film comes in a line of recent films which have, I think, really brilliantly used archive footage to tell uh, stories of the UK. So I'm thinking about Penny Wilcox, From the Land to the Sea, from 2012, mm -hmm. which... Um, explored the century of Britain's um, coastline and the music for that was from British Sea Power. Uh, you also have The Big Melt which was about the Sheffield steel industry. Uh, again, only archive footage and that was directed by Martin Wallace and Jarvis Cocker right. uh, and they performed the music live to that Great. in Sheffield um, as indeed British Sea Power um, performed the music live. So it's this interesting way of bringing... You, Reanimating the archive, revisiting the archive, representing work, but with a kind of modern inflection and reflection on life. And what Arcadia does, as I say, is reflect on a relationship with nature, with the countryside, um, with, with traditions, with folk traditions, with um, rural traditions. But you can think about it as being a sort of nostalgic thing. But what Paul does really brilliantly is interrogate that, and it becomes quite a social and political sort of rallying cry for what it, what what have we done mm. <laughs> what have we do, what are we doing what have we done and what do we want so there's some really quite profound um, and challenging thought provoking issues that Arcadia raises the music uh, really works with those images um, and I know that uh, Adrian used folk singers uh, and updated versions of folk singers um, songs as well so sort of linking the tradition and the traditional with the contemporary. Uh, so a really powerful political uh, film, which I would totally recommend. I can't wait to see it. It sounds fantastic. And then the big re-release that we're really excited about this month is um, Jane Campion's The Piano. Yeah. So it's this 25-year anniversary of the film. It came out in 1993. Um, it is one of the biggest award-winning films yeah. well, of all time. Fam well, famously, uh, <laughs> probably infamously now, uh, Jane Campion won the Palme d'Or and is still the only woman to have won the Palme d'Or. Which is quite astonishing, but here yeah. we are. Yeah. yeah, so she won the Palme d'Or. Um, Holly Hunter won Best Actress in Cannes. Then it went on to win three act uh, Oscars, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress. So that's Holly Hunter and Anna Paquin and also Best Writing for Jane Campion. Um, you know, endless critics awards in Chicago, New York, London Film Critics Circle, uh, 11 Australian Film Institute awards. This film just kind of the the behemoth that precedes it in terms of its acclaim um, is quite something and as somebody who didn't see it on release in 1993 I didn't come to this film until I guess probably early 2000s so somewhat later there is a lot for it to live up to um, but I think that this film does live up to its acclaim um, it is a, an incredibly fascinating film it's got a score from Michael Nyman um, it's all about silence 
voice, the kind of post-colonial gaze about desire, passion, um, commerce of sexuality and gender. Um, and, and, and all of this plays out in a really breathtaking... Um, well, I think that's the thing is that that... All of, big all, all of vision. that plays out exactly in that, but in a very a very simple story, yeah. but a very unexpected story. And it's, it's, a, set, in the, it's set in the mid-19th century. Holly Hunter plays a, a Scottish woman, Ada McGrath, who is, she's not spoken since she was six years old. Um, she's sold by her father into a marriage to a New Zealand frontiersman. Uh, so she, she finds herself and her daughter mm. um, out in New Zealand, mid 19th century, with her small belongings, but a piano. And the, the piano which her, her husband, well, her, her what would it be called? Paid. Pay, her, her well, he is her husband. <laughs> he I mean, is you know, he's paid, he's paid to be her husband. <laughs> yeah. Um, who who says that you know, we're not having the piano. Leaves the piano on the beach, which he sells it then to Baines, our friend, um, who f famously paid by Harvey Keitel. Great great performance from Harvey Keitel in this. Who says that he will sell it back to her if she gives her him piano lessons, and so the the, the story is really about the piano lessons and the relationship that develops between uh, Holly Hunter and Harvey Keitel. It's kind of a very simple uh, uh, premise, but extraordinary story in that sort of mid-19th century New Zealand. Mm. And of course that iconic image of the piano on the beach, you know, culture and nature, just fantastically in one, in one image. But yet all those things that you mentioned are swirling around this film. And I often, I saw it when it first came out, which was a great experience. I can um, only imagine. And, and I think it's one of those films where, you know, the, there is cinema before the piano and there is cinema after the piano. So there is cinema before Jane Campion and there is cinema after Jane Campion. I think for us in the, in the film world, we knew about Sweetie, her earlier film. We knew about her short films. We knew about Sweetie. We knew about the angel at my table. We knew, and she was a... She was our director, she was a cinephile sort of right. director, but with the piano this kind of launched her into um, much wider, um, with all those awards, I mean a much wider global sort of recognition. And with the piano she really established uh, an exploration from a female perspective. And she, she said in an interview that what she wanted to do was to re-examine what erotic is. Mm. And it was added to that is from a female sensibility. Um, and she she not only did it in the piano, but she did it in a in a popular mainstream. Way. So she really launched herself in that exploration into the popular mainstream space. Yeah. I think I think it's quite it's quite a remarkable achievement to um, have the film be about so many of those things that we mentioned, um, when it is also just a very beautiful dramatic story, yes. um, an incredible coastline, incredible imagery. But there is so much going on beneath the surface. It's a really rich film, um, and a, a quite yeah, quite an impressive experience. So, so it'd be great to see it again um, back on the. Um, back on the cinema screen. The other thing that's great to see back on the cinema screen this month is a host of uh, different versions of Frankenstein. So the the kind of the monster is back, yes. I suppose. Um, and the big Prometheus. question, Prometheus is back, is who we're afraid of. Is it the create the creator or the creation? Um, and that's that's always been the, the kind of question around Frankenstein. And it's really going to be fascinating to look at what the popular iconic ways in which we understand and imagine this monster and how that relates to the original story. Well, I, I was keen to do this because of the anniversary of the Mary Shelley's, the publication of Mary Shelley's 
book Frankenstein, I, which I'd never read. But if you may, if you see the words Frankenstein, what what comes to people's mind? It's it, alive. It's Boris Karloff. <laughs> it's Boris Karloff and James Whale's yeah. 1930s film. It's so iconic, and that has determined what you say when you say Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So I thought, I must read this book. Go, and back, go back to the source material. <laughs> and of course, it's, you go back it's to the source material. Nothing like the nothing, film. Of course, nothing like the film. <laughs> well, or was me, you know, as if, as if that should come as a surprise. But what really struck me about the book was how it is an exploration of that, or precisely of that, but how you, you get the, the monsters, the creations perspective on that issue of, you know, who am I, what am I, you know, am I a beast? Am I um, human? You know, why am I? And and so many um, incredible issues, but also just the the setting of it, and it becomes a a, a sort of philosophical discourse on creation. Um, in the popular imagination, Frankenstein is Boris Karloff. Yeah, um, nuts and bolts in the neck. <laughs> nuts and bolts in the, in the neck, and a huge bolt of lightning that sets everything off. Um, so I was interested to sort of just explore it a bit wider. So to see a, a, a range of the presentations of um, Mary Shelley, Frankenstein, and I remembered that Ken Russell, of course, had made Gothic. I don't um, think I've seen it. I, actually, I was I, trying to remember if I, I have, and I think I haven't. I haven't seen it for years, but what, what this is about, because the book was famously conceived on a, a night on Lake Geneva, with Mary Shelley, Lord her, Byron, her husband Percibus Shelley, um, and Lord Byron, um, drugs may have been taken, liquor may have been consumed, <laughs> but they 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 were in a big one of these big um, mansion houses o o over Lake Geneva. There was a it was a stormy night. They told each other ghost stories. They told each other. Horror stories. It's brilliant, isn't it? And and Mary Shelley, eighteen years old, um, you know, conceived of of um, Frankenstein, and then wrote. And what Ken Russell does is put us puts us there in the origin of the myth. Um, so it will be interesting to see that again. Then um, later, more uh, respectful, I guess, and to, well, uh, respectful to the to the um, chronology of the book. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, directed by Kenneth Branagh, which 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 tries to be more mm. um, true to the book, and then of course, Mel Brooks comes along. I mean, this is for me probably the greatest. Uh, Young Frankenstein is an ad adorable film. I mean, it really is. This is kind of Mel Brooks at his best, I think. Um, it's hilarious. And it's one of those th films where I wondered if actually it might have been a bit dated. Like, I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. Um, and actually, Il Cinema Ritrovato in Bologna were showing, uh, I think it was at last year's festival, a 4K restoration. And I, I remember thinking, why on earth would somebody go to the effort of making a, a beautiful 4K restoration of a Mel Brooks film? And then I saw it on screen. And I completely understood why. Um, one, the film is just a delight. It's an absolute delight to watch. And two, cinematically, it's stunning, um, which you wouldn't kind of think for a, a sort of light, entertaining film like this, that this would be, you know, a kind of comedy, a farcical parody of Frankenstein. And it really is riffing off James Whale's film um, with Gene Wilder in the, you know, kind of lead role and Madeleine Kahn, who's just an incredible actress. Um, and it's hilarious, but it's 
beautiful and the depth of color in the black and white of this restoration is stunning so it actually i think this is a really fascinating film to come back to and to visit especially through the lens of what was mary shelley's story and then where have we ended up with the kind of pop culture references and it is a story that um i think will be remade and remade retold in generations and it has got a really um it, it has a profound hold on the imagination which is it which is say, just amazing 18 year old um women uh, at the time 200 years ago and really pleased that christopher frailing the cultural commentator critic um renaissance man is going to be exploring that capture of the imagination um he's going to be giving a talk which will pull together um, I'm sure some of the films he'll, he'll be referencing as well as its impact on a wider culture. Yeah, it's brilliant. So that's pretty much it for the month of June, although there are several films that we haven't managed to fit into this conversation, so there's lots more to explore. Please do check watershed.co.uk for further details and to find out about other films and events that we have this month. Um, we'll be back to talk to you about the films for July, and you can get in touch with us, of course, on social media.